Hello, and welcome to NANCAST. I'm Jill, your host. As neonatal neurodevelopmental care has become standard of practice in many NICUs, neonatal neurocritical care has emerged as a subspecialty. Building on neurodevelopmental care and expanding it further into a more brain-focused approach with the whole neonatal healthcare team maintaining constant awareness of the potential neurological complications as well as the impact of interventions on the developing and injured brain. Some of the conditions that benefit from this new approach include neonatal encephalopathy, HIE, seizures, intracranial hemorrhage, ischemic stroke, and intracranial infection. It is early recognition of at-risk newborns by means of advanced methods of neuroimaging combined with brain-focused interventions that may result in the prevention or the reduction in the incidence of lifelong disabilities such as cerebral palsy, epilepsy, and behavioral and learning disorders. I'm sure we have all cared for infants that required advanced neuroimaging, but how do we as NICU nurses use neuroimaging results in our neuroprotection practice? How does neuroimaging play in support of our families? What role does neuroimaging have in support services provided to the family after discharge? I am excited to have two experts in neonatal neurology to help us take a closer look into neuroimaging, Diane Wilson and Kathy Randall. Diane Wilson is a neonatal nurse practitioner whose primary role is the neonatal intensive care unit at the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto, where she specializes in the care of babies with brain injury. She has been instrumental in the development of the neonatal neurocritical care unit at SickKids, a specialized area within the NICU for newborns with a primary diagnosis of brain injury. Diane works closely with neonatology and neurology teams, providing a liaison and a point of contact for both. Diane follows patients in the neonatal neurology clinic and combined neurology developmental follow-up clinic. Kathy Randall is a clinical nurse specialist and a neonatal nurse practitioner. She is also the founder of Synapse Care Solutions, an education and consulting company dedicated to supporting neonatal neurocritical care units. Kathy is the NeuroNICU Program Consultant at Lucille Packard Children's Hospital at Stanford University, but she also spends a good amount of time traveling the globe supporting other NeuroNICU programs from Thailand to Brazil. She has published several peer-reviewed articles on the subject of AEEG and NeuroNICU programs, as well as the author of several chapters on nursing practice related to therapeutic hypothermia and the bedside use of AEEG. And in 2018, Kathy helped to spearhead the development of the NeuroNICU certification exam. Let's get right into it. Hi, guys. Thank you so much for joining us today. And what makes you so excited to talk to us about brain imaging? Hi, Jill. It's great to be here today. Uh, We're really excited about talking to, to you today about brain imaging because it's something that helps us to see inside the baby's head and inside the brain, and that's really the our particular area of interest. There's three different ways that we can look inside the brain, and the first one is MRI, of course, but there's also head ultrasound and CT scan. Yeah. 
Yeah, so I was just going to add, you know, my the reason why I enjoy talking about this uh, topic today, especially, I mean, there are so many different topics that we could talk about. I mean, Diane and I both love talking about baby brains. But I think specifically why we wanted to talk about imaging with nurses is because a lot of us have had zero training on imaging and how important it can be to guiding the babies in, you know, plan of care while you're in the NICU, but also for giving us such powerful information long-term. So we really want to spend time trying to demystify and kind of, you know, maybe unmuddy the waters of, of what you know now about imaging and how valuable it can be. Okay. So demystify this. How does MRI compare to ultrasound and CAT scan and why do we use the different forms of imaging? Sure. Diane, you want to take that one? Yeah, great question. So we've been using ultrasound for so many years in the NICU, and it really is a mainstay of our ability to see what's happening in the brain, especially uh, without having to move the babies off the unit. So it's a great screening tool that can be used right in the NICU at the baby's bedside. We can do it many, many times. So did you know, every day if we want to, we could do an ultrasound and it's very easy to see the ventricular system in the brain. Um, One of the limitations that we run into with ultrasound though, is that we can't see the border zones of the brain or when you start to get away from that window through the fontanelle, it's difficult to see the gray and white matter of the brain. So the field of view is really small um, with ultrasound and oftentimes we miss big parts of the brain, like the cerebellum. You can't see the cerebellum at all sometimes with ultrasound. Uh, The other thing is that only one plane is visualized. So when we are able to do MRI and CT scan, we can actually take different views of the brain and see all the different areas of the brain. One of the drawbacks for CT scan and the reason we don't use it very much anymore is because there is a lot of radiation that's involved with CT scan. It's compared to doing many different, many x-rays on a baby um, would be how much one CT scan how much radiation is involved in one CT scan. So MRI really is the gold standard for being able to see the brain really well and being able to see all the structures of the brain and being able to see the gray and white matter of the brain and really being able to delineate any kind of injury. And that's really why we are excited about MRI. Yeah. That's really great. I mean, CT, I think one of the things, you know, especially if you've been practicing for a long time or if if you ever practice or know of people who practice in limited resource ca- countries, CT is still all they have. And so, again, we do love ultrasound as a screening tool, but we know that that we may not see everything with ultrasound. And so getting that 3D look at the brain is important. And for places that don't have MRI, they still do have to use CT. It's just one of those things that they will do. But, you know, in places where we have access to MRI, that is still what we want to do. And we know CT has its place also for, you know, an emergency, non-accidental trauma, you know, those types of injuries, maybe looking for calcifications and things like that. So there can be some very specific times we would still use CT, but in general, limiting any radiation on a developing brain is is definitely goal number one. 
So I know a lot of nurses, we try to read the MRI impressions and the reads, but it can be really confusing and it's very hard to decipher the information. We, we try to sound like we're really smart when we give report and say what the MRI findings are, but, you know, we really don't have a strong grasp of everything that we're reporting out. Um, can you kind of go over the different terminologies that we find in those reports and those reads? Sure. Um, maybe I'll start and then Diane, you can jump in and help me out where I get lost. Yeah, um, for sure. <laughs> so, um, so I guess first off, you, what we want to understand is there are different sequences that we use and to see different parts of the baby's brain. And there's also different sizes of magnets. So I think one bit of terminology that at least confused me for a really long time is when people talk about the size of the magnet, it might be a 1T or or a 3T or a 1.5T or some places have these very big um, magnets, 5T and 7T. And T stands for Tesla. And so not Tesla like the electric car, but Tesla as in the strength <laughs> of the magnet and size of the magnet. And then we talk about sequences. There are also Ts that get involved. So T1 and T2 have to do with how the sequence is generated and the amount of time that is applied to the brain structure of the um, radio frequencies. And so we oftentimes use T1 and T2 images as part of kind of the uh, sequence we use to look for anatomy. And then maybe, Diane, you want to talk about some of the other um, sequences that we might use? Sure, Yeah. And the other thing that makes it really confusing before I get into some of the sequences is that different manufacturers of different MRI machines call the sequences different things. So yeah. we, we, the terminology is pretty basic, but when you get into the different machines, it can be called the same thing can be called many different names. So T1 and T2 sequences are sequences that we use to look for the anatomy of the brain. So what, what is the structure of the brain? Is the brain developed properly? Um, is there any calcifications or anything like that? We can see those types of things on T1 and T2 sequences. And then DWI, which is probably the most important sequence and the go-to sequence that we use the most in the NICU, measures the movement of water through the white matter and the gray matter of the brain. And if there is restriction in the movement of water, then we know that there is damaged brain or ischemic brain tissue in that area. And then we have the SWE or the SWI sequence. And in that sequence, we're able to see blood and we're able to actually uh, time when the hemorrhage happened if there is blood there based on the SWI sequence. And then there's another... Um, there's another sequence. It's, it really is a sequence, but it's called MR spectroscopy, which is not really an image of the brain, but what it does is it picks up the metabolites in the brain and it can give us an idea of whether there might be an underlying inborn error of metabolism. And it's really amazing how they do the MRS. They put a little voxel or a little box on the brain in the in the on the pictures in the magnet, and then they can actually measure the different metabolites in the brain right in that specific area. And they look for things like lactate. They look for things like uh, uh, NAA or non-acetylcholine. Uh, 
I, I can't I say know, that like, word. That NAA, me non-acetyl aspartate. That's what it is. <laughs> um, and then sometimes you can see things like glycine. And if you saw glycine on an MRS, then you would know that the baby had a really rare condition called non-ketotic hyperglycinemia. So there's some really amazing things that we can do with MRI with the different sequences. Yeah, I like to sometimes think of the sequences kind of like um, if you think about your Instagram feed and how you can apply different filters to the same picture to see different things that, you know, the neuroradiologist is really the artist looking at the baby's brain. And these, if you think of it in a really simplistic term, it is still the same brain. They're just applying different pulse sequences inside a protocol that they've created for that specific problem. Usually they kind of have a a protocol and they may use some of these sequences, all of these sequences, or they may even bring the baby back and rerun only one of these sequences. And so it's still the baby's same brain, but each of these sequences are like filters on your phone that might let you kind of enhance one one particular kind of pathology or problem that would allow us to see it better. So the, the team, your medical team, will write MRI, you know, maybe plus DWI kind of depends on how your system works. But, you know, to us, we're just taking the baby to MRI, but it's really the radiologists who are doing that really big work of, you know, picking the filters for lack of a better term or sequences that will help them best make the diagnosis. Um, So maybe that will help um, people to understand how sequences play in. For sure. That's a great analogy. That's great. I mean, that makes sense. Bring something that we do every day to life and, yeah. and put that to, to MRI and it makes it does make a lot of sense. But that was really helpful because now you're, okay, they're doing this filter. This is what they need because they're trying to see if there's an anatomical problem. And then we're going to try this filter and see if there is any kind of necrotic area. So, or when did the injury occur? And that's very helpful information for nurses. You know, how are we going to guide our, our care? Yeah. Um, because not every baby for every problem needs every sequence. And so, again, they kind of pick and choose, you know, which ones they, they want to use to help them tell the story. And, and even, for example, if we did, you know, a DWI and we maybe identify a stroke, well, they might even add on something that we didn't even talk about, which was something like an MRV or an MRA, wanting to actually look at, you know, the entire, you know, flow and the vessels of the brain. And so, again, it's just the same brain, but using these different sequences to, to show something that will help us, um, you know, kind of know what the path forward is. The other thing is that they can also add on, um, they can make the sequences as thick or as thin as they want as well, which helps to be able to see if there's really subtle things. They can just make the slices a little bit thinner and be able to see areas that maybe, oh, I see a funny shadow there. I want to really zone in on that and see exactly what's going on. So they'll do some thinner sequences or thinner slices and be able to see that area really clearly. They can also look at different planes. So, you know, we were talking about head ultrasound at the beginning and really how you can only see one plane through the fontanelle. But with MRI, you can see all different planes. So you can see the sagittal plane, the coronal plane, the axial plane, and as Kathy mentioned, the MRA, the MRV. So there's so many different ways you can use MRI to help get the answers that you're looking for. Yeah. And I think as the technology develops too, 
you know, and there's a lot of, um, you know, as I talked about applying a filter to the brain itself, but even there are even filters and other things that they do because these images are created in a way that they can manipulate them. Um, they can apply post-processing filters They that, you know, they have algorithms that can, you know, help them um, with in- artificial intelligence. And also they can even reconstruct, um, you know, a kind of a 3D image. They, if they go from all those different planes that Diane mentioned, then they reconstruct and now they have a 3D image of the brain. And that's really the the true difference, I think, when you really think about ultrasound versus MRI is you really are getting that full brain look and you're getting all those planes, you're getting 3D, you're not missing anything. And we have to assume with ultrasound that just because there's nothing visible doesn't mean it's not there because we Mm -hmm. only can see so much. Like Diane was saying, we miss those border zones and we may not get through that window well enough um, to see everything that's really there. So until you have that MRI, you don't really know that there is no injury. And uh, and I think that's important for us to know is that yes, ultrasound is important and valuable and, and accessible, but that more important is knowing that until you have that MRI, you won't really have um, that gold standard for really diagnosing and really knowing the path forward for that baby. Kathy, how does MRI fit in with choosing wisely? Choosing wisely, which is really an AAP term, and, you know, meaning to not overuse technology, not overuse procedures or medications. And at the same time, you know, trying to balance that with if it was your baby, what would you want done? And many places um, do do follow a protocol that would get several ultrasounds, bedside ultrasounds in the beginning of a baby's stay, maybe one in the first three days, maybe one in the first week, repeat around day 14, repeat again around day 28. And then we do um, oftentimes see some centers, depending on if abnormalities are seen, getting term equivalent MRIs. And the, the benefit of that is being able to guide at-home treatment and being able to give families a more definitive answer towards prognosis. And so although the AAP's guidelines suggest, but they don't fully recommend getting a term equivalent MRI, I think both Diane and I feel that that would be a better practice. And when it's available and can be safely done, especially sedation-free MRI, and and we would be happy to talk about that, we feel like getting the MRI before discharge has a lot of value. So a lot of institutions do serial bedside ultrasounds, especially in their micropremies, and they do follow up maybe like the first three days, then seven days, two weeks, et cetera. But, you know, is it recommended or should we continue following that with maybe an MRI post-discharge or pre-discharge just to make sure that we do see those things that we can't capture in an ultrasound and how that would guide, you know, discharge planning or interventions, you know, later in life? Yeah, this is a great question. It's one that's very controversial right now um, out there in the, the medical community that serves our patients. Um, we've seen some guidelines um, updated recently, and um, some of the recommendations are not maybe as as strong as what Diane and I would probably suggest, and maybe that if it was your baby, what you would want to see happen. Um, definitely getting serial ultrasounds, you know, in the beginning of a baby stay are important because they're easy to do and can give you kind of that day-to-day 
you know, look at the brain or at least serially looking to see if there's a bleed. The problem that we're seeing is just that if there is no abnormal findings on MRI, people are questioning the value of that term equivalent or pre-discharged MRI. And, and what some studies would show is that there are, in fact, some some findings that will be discovered on those late MRIs that are not seen on ultrasound. Um, we don't quite know all of the full percentages of that, but there are even studies showing incidental findings of things when MRIs are done. So, so we think that it is a best practice to offer an MRI if it can be done safely, and we can probably go into that. Um, and that ultrasound, again, is just a great screening tool, but that it is not everything. And maybe Diane, you want to talk a little bit more about that and then also maybe talk about some of the parental stress that that have has kind of been thrown around. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think um, you know, we we have a duty to our patients to do the best possible care for them. And certainly if we're missing diagnosis, then that is possibly preventable harm to the patient. And so it's really important that we have a full picture of what we know about the baby uh, by the time, at least by the time the baby's being discharged. And I mean, I would argue that we need to get that picture early on in the course so that we can plan the course a little bit more completely. But for sure, I think we need to do MRI um towards the end of the baby's stay in, in a term equivalent baby that's been a preterm baby for sure to see if we have missed anything along the way with the ultrasound and to be able to plan the future for that baby. And certainly, you know, there is controversial. The parental stress piece has become quite controversial and, um, you know, some some literature says that MRI really increases parental stress but, you know, many different families are going to see this differently and certainly uh, family dynamics and, and the social determinants of health for each individual family need to be taken into account. The MRI is possibly going to provide some very valuable information about the prognosis for their babies, give the family a chance to understand what the path ahead holds for them and allow them access to early intervention so that they can optimize the outcomes for their baby. I think that's super important, especially, um, you know, with babies that are getting smaller and smaller gestational ages, smaller and smaller sizes, you know, we don't know enough about those 22, 23 weakers um, and their long-term neurodevelopmental outcomes. So we need to get as much information as possible so that we can provide the best care possible for these families. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I see that all the time in, in my practice. You know, you have a baby, an HIE baby or, you know, a premature baby with, uh, you know, severe IVH. And, you know, the parents are so, so stressed. They don't have a, you know, there's, they don't have that knowledge. They don't have an answer. And they, you know, what's the future going to be like? What's, what's my baby going to, you know, how's my baby going to struggle? And, you know, they, they really want that MRI just to have something tangible to say, you know, this is, this is what we're dealing with. This is, you know, this is what we can do to help your baby. And, you know, sometimes the MRI is a little bit of a, a, a high stress point, but it also helps to alleviate some of that stress once they can find something more concrete that they can, you know, the docs can say, this is what we found. 
Um, yeah, yeah for sure. I mean, they have a right to that information. They have a right to know what everything that we know. And so exactly. it's important that um, we're able to be as accurate as possible as well. Yeah, and set that plan forward. And I think that that makes them feel more comfortable and confident in, in their baby's care as well. So, yeah, I think going back to the parental stress, there was a study done in the UK where they actually um, did ultrasounds and MRIs and they, they had two different groups of babies and the parents whose babies got MRIs, but who didn't get the results actually showed more anxiety than those who, you know, got the MRIs and got the results. And so it was an interesting study to say, you know, if you, if you get it, you want, you want to have that information and, um, and knowing it gave them more confidence later as well. And so I think that it's not our job to make that decision for the families. We need to, we need to offer this as a tool, a useful tool. And of course, families still have the right to say that that isn't what they want. But I think it's really on us as the provider team to encourage them um, to get the information, even if they choose not to get the answers now. Um, but definitely that study showed that if they got the information that they felt less worry as they went away from, from the NICU. Um, some families don't want that information and that's okay, but I think it's on us to have a really clear way of communicating the benefits of what we hope to gain, but also to have a really open conversation, even if it is bad news. Parent, I've heard parent groups talk about this and they'll say, you know, of course we never want bad news right? There is no easy way to deliver bad news. But if if there's bad news to be given, I would rather know it sooner rather than later. And some families have been through a long NICU journey. And 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 I think sometimes as nurses, we want to protect the family. I've heard, heard people say that, you know, they've been through so much, you know, it's not going to really change what we do. Mm-hmm. Do we really have to put them through this MRI? And do we really have to get this information now? And and I don't think it's for us to make that decision. I think we have to, you know, be really clear in our communications and that I think that delivering the news part is really essential too. And that we as the providers have to get better at delivering good and bad news about the MRI and feel more comfortable with that, um, you know, kind of speak, speaking from kind of the, not the bedside, but maybe as a nurse practitioner or as a neo, you know, so we need to partner with our teams to be able to give that information. I don't know, Diane, do you guys do anything special about that, about delivering the the news about MRIs? Well, we always plan a sit-down meeting to talk about the MRI, whether it's good or bad. And, you know, it's it's not, it's a piece of the puzzle. It's not, you know, we try not to make it the end point where, Mm -hmm. you know, a lot of places, well, we're waiting for the MRI, we're waiting for this, we're waiting for that. Obviously, we're talking, especially in babies with HIE, we're talking about the exam and the EEG and all of the other pieces of the puzzle as well. Um, the MRI is a super important part, but it's not the only part. So we try not to make it the complete focus of the discussion. But um, as a medical team, it's it's the key piece of the puzzle. And without that piece... Um, we can't accurately predict what's going to happen in the future. So, um, I think, I think as, you know, as, as parents, parents have a right to know what's going on with their baby and we as medical professions, 
professionals, um, we need to provide them with that information in the best way that we possibly can. So um, I'm a strong advocate for sure for getting MRI. Yeah. And I think as bedside nurses, it's really important to be part of, part of those conversations and be part of those family meetings and uh, be able to support the family, whether it is good news or bad news. And, you know, have a little, you know, pocket worth of information or things that you say that you know that families will respond to. Um, and if you do it often enough and are part of those meetings often enough, then you will know um, what the right things to say are in any situation. And after listening to this podcast, we'll know how to correctly interpret all of our MRI readings. <laughs> I don't so know. We will feel more educated and providing uh, information to our families as well. Because um, I think, you know, that that always makes you a better nurse if you're educated on what you're talking about. So, you know, just arm yourself with that knowledge and that's going to help us too with those, you know, difficult conversations and times of uncertainty. And, um, you know, especially with all the studies out with PTSD with these parents. So, you know, any tool that we have that can provide some form of, you know, comfort or knowledge is is awesome to give by these parents. So, yeah, absolutely. Oftentimes we have babies that are getting serial MRIs. What would be the reasons why we would want to do follow-up MRI, serial MRIs for these babies? So there's, uh, there's lots of different conditions that we do serial MRIs for, and there are specific reasons for that. So, for example, if we saw a clot, um, like a CSVT or a synovenous thrombosis is, is what the most common clot that we see in term babies is. And oftentimes we use heparin to treat those clots to try to break down the clot and prevent the clot from expanding. So we want to do follow-up imaging on those babies to make sure that the clot is not expanding and that there's no further bleeding in the brain. The other uh, conditions, another condition that's quite common is meningitis. And so babies that are treated with antibiotics for a long period of time because of meningitis need follow-up imaging to make sure that they haven't developed abscesses in their brain. If they have developed abscesses in their brain and we're giving them antibiotics for even a longer period of time, then we'd want to do another follow-up imaging at the end of the antibiotics to make sure that those abscesses are healing and getting better. Um, of course, we've already talked about um, term MRIs in preterm babies, so that would be another reason to do serial imaging. Uh, and then we um, oftentimes will do pre- and post-op MRI scans in our cardiac babies that are going for um, cardiac surgery that requires the pump or that are on, you know, on bypass for a period of time because we know that those babies are prone to having a stroke as a result of being on bypass. Or even on ECMO, those babies um, oftentimes will want to do imaging when they are decannulated to make sure that they haven't developed a stroke as a result of the decannulation. So 
you know, there are some uncommon things that we do follow up MRIs for that um, are part of that list. And then there's some more common things. And then, of course, in HIE, you know, we're often just getting one MRI. But what about if we wanted to see the progression of injury in MRI or or in um, the baby? Or if there was something that happened um, when the baby came back to the follow-up clinic, clinic that was unexpected, you know, we weren't expecting a change that we saw when we examined the baby at the first follow-up clinic visit, then we might do a follow-up MRI to see what the reason for that change was or if we can figure something else out that's going on, maybe a genetic reason or something like that. Do you have any, can you think of any other reasons, Kathy, why we might do serial imaging? No, I think that you pretty much covered all the reasons I could think of. I I think just I just wanted to make sure people just really think about that, you know, we we don't even hesitate to think about doing um, a serial, you know, x-rays or serial ultrasounds, but serial MRIs are, most of us want to think of one and done, right? That one before discharge, but there really are true, um, you know, reasons why it can be indicated to do it frequently or to at least do it multiple times before discharge and even follow up after discharge. So, you know, I think that you gave a, a, a really great list of examples there. And um, and that maybe leads us, Jill, into the next questions around, um, you know, why we don't love to do MRIs. I was just thinking yeah. like, oh, that's what a nurse wants to hear, serial MRI. The prep work and everything that goes into getting your baby ready for MRI, or even if you work in an uh, institution that doesn't have MRI, now I have to get this baby transferred to another um, yeah. institution where there's MRI. So, you know, what are some of the safety concerns related to MRI? We all know as a nurse, it's not the most fun thing to do um, when your patient is assigned to go to MRI, that yeah. shift. But, you know, from from your standpoint, what are some of the things that you're concerned about when, when we have to have a baby go to MRI? Yeah, I, I think um, it's if you ask a nurse to tell you tell you one of their worst days ever, it's always going to probably have to do with, um, you know, taking a kid off the unit to MRI, right? Mm-hmm. So we all have our own PTSD to deal with around that. And, um, and so, and I think probably there's, there's the obvious things, right? You have to pack the baby up, you have to prep all the lines. I mean, those pieces of getting a baby ready to go off the unit um, are certainly time consuming. They're are sometimes filled with lots of waste in the sense of we have to order extra fluids and way more tubings and, you know, all of that, that the time involved in that. Um, there is the actual moving the baby through the unit, especially a very critical baby. And many times we'll just not scan babies. We'll wait till they're more stable. And that also, again, delays us being able to give the family that information, make critical decisions about the plan of care. Um, Of course, to get a good MRI image, you want the baby to be still, which in some institutions means using sedation, and that has its own set of complications as well. And so I think, you know, we think about transportation issues, the prep, preparation, we think about sedation, right? It's all these T-I-O-N words, right? Sedation, transportation. Um, And it's just it's just all of the being away from your resources. You know, you take the baby down the elevator, across through the sky bridge, down another elevator, into the adult units or whatever. And, you know, you're 
you have the risk of infections, especially right now in our current crisis. We've got the, you know, some places they're not even taking babies out of the NICU. And then you have all of kind of the developmental things we want to worry about and um, care things that we may see. The baby may get cold. The baby's, ex- you know, exposed to a lot of extra sound and noise that might, you know, make them agitated and then make them move, which then makes them need sedation. And so we really do want to provide sedation-free MRI. And I and maybe, um, you know, Diane can talk to that or I can talk to that. Um, but sedation-free MRI is really the goal. But it's challenging to do, especially when you have such a long procedure, a prep, long, long prep time, transport time, procedure time. It's it's really hard to do. Yeah, I, I agree with that for sure. I think um, definitely MRI, taking a baby to MRI is taking you outside of your comfort zone as well as a bedside nurse. And so it's equipment that you're not often familiar with. It has to be MRI compatible because of the magnet. Um, again, it's just very noisy and uncomfortable. There's a lot of packaging and all of that that needs to be done. Um, the sedation part is, you know, for MRI babies, if they move, then it's the scan's really not worth anything. It has to be a movement-free scan. So in order to make the baby still, we're going to have to either spend a lot of time trying to um, put them to sleep or feed feed and wrap and, and wrapping them, really bundle, bundling them up so they can't move and cause us to have to repeat the whole sequence again. Or use sedation. And I, I agree with Kathy in that we really want to try to move away from using sedation uh, unless it's absolutely necessary. And certainly for babies that are, are sick and are intubated and aren't even feeding, uh, we don't we don't have another option. We need to sedate those babies. But um, if we can do a sedation-free MRI, then that's definitely the way to go if possible. And sometimes it takes a little longer because it takes a little bit more meticulous attention to uh, detail with regards to putting the baby to sleep and bundling them up nice and yeah. tight. Uh, one tool that's been really helpful for a lot of places that I've visited is um, using those papooses, um, kind of a beanbag papoose. And um, and so if, if you get really good at using that, it can be helpful. But, you know, a moving crying baby is still a moving crying baby, even inside the papoose, right? They still yeah. wiggle around. Um, and so I, I like that we're beginning to see some innovations around MRI. We're seeing portable MRIs. We're seeing in-unit MRIs. And I think that that's really trying to create, you know, understanding this difficulty for us. And, and I think that, you know, the future is going to, you know, really begin to offer some solutions to these really common problems. And yeah, I think that's kind of a fun thing to think about for the future. But, you know, if you don't have those available in your hospital, then, you know, wrapping, packing, um, maybe doing as much as you can inside the NICU to get the baby ready. Um, I know some hospitals um, have a portable MR compatible um, uh, heart rate monitor and yeah. pulse ox so that that way you can can actually get all the leads, all the pulse ox, kind of do the wanding, make do all your metal checks. 
then feed, then wrap, swaddle, pack, and then move the baby to MR. That way, as soon as you get there, hopefully things are running on time. You're not having to wait out in the hallway for an hour. And you can just kind of quickly just bring the bundle, pick up the baby and move and not have to in that very cold environment. We didn't even talk about temperature. But inside that cold environment, move that baby one more time. So minimizing that as well as MR compatible incubators. You know, that's something that's new, you know, in the last, you know, decade that, you know, not all of us even have that. That's another way we're, again, trying to move and pack and wrap as much as we can in the NICU so that that transfer in the MR suite is as minimal as possible to give us the best shot at keeping the baby quiet without sedation. So I think all of those innovations that we've seen and even the creative use of those bundles you know, help us maximize the possibility of success um, without using sedation. And many hospitals have done thousands and thousands and thousands of babies sedation free. So it's not a pipe dream to do it. It just takes a committed team uh, to make it happen and, and to get really good at using those tools. You just need to learn the dance. That's all. Find the time to learn right. the dance. You know, it's a, a big choreography <laughs> routine with MRI and the nurse yep. and the doc, but it can be done. I, I've worked. I work in institutions that we don't use sedation, and it, it does work. But you know, it's it is a dance. But you know, once we it get used to it, and like you said, there's new innovations all the time. I think people are starting to see the importance of MRI and what it can do to drive our care and hopefully improve outcomes. So you know, hope those new innovations keep coming um, and yeah. are accessible to to more people because we're we're seeing the importance of neuroimaging now um, more than ever. Absolutely. It's a great way to see inside the baby's brain without exposing them to any radiation Um, and, you know, fairly easily we can get really good quality pictures. So it's a great, great tool. So we now know really the importance of MRI and the dance that goes along with trying to get our babies there. But do you guys have any final thoughts or final tidbits or, you know, little caveats of information on MRI that you think is really important for NICU nurses to know? I think, um, you know, one of the things that I really just want to make sure everybody is clear on is that MRI is safe. It's a safe modality of getting really good quality images of the baby's brain. There's absolutely no radiation that's used at all in MRI. It's our body's natural magnetic field, um, which are the protons are aligning and relaxing and moving around. And that's how the images are created. It's absolutely nothing to do with radiation. So it's not harmful for the baby at all. Um, the only concern is really the, the safety concerns around moving the baby and transport. And I think we've talked about those already and how to mitigate those, um, those concerns. One of the things I'm, I'm Canadian. That's kind of my disclosure. And in, in Canada, we talk about choosing wisely, but we also talk about a caring safely culture. And caring safely culture means that we're providing the best possible care that we can to our babies in the safest way possible. And so you kind of have to balance the choosing wisely and the caring safely culture to do the right thing for the patients. And in my opinion, MRI is always going to be the right thing because it's giving us 
as much information as we can to help our babies in the best way possible have the best long-term neurodevelopmental outcomes. And that's really what matters in the long, long run. Yeah, that's, I think that's really powerful um, to think about. And, and I guess the thing I would just add is I just want nurses to not be afraid of looking at these images, at reading the reports. And I, I think I said in the beginning, like, let's demystify this. Let's pull, let's just not not look. Let's not take this, just like we've learned to read x-rays. I'm not saying go learn how to read the images, but it's just pattern recognition after a while. And you can begin to, if you participate in looking at these images and reading the reports and participating in the you know, the family meetings, like Diane suggested, it can be such powerful information um, to understand what exactly is going on. And, and like so many other things that that we now do at the bedside, I, I just, you know, like AEEG or, um, you know, other other things that we were never really part of before. I think that we're we're trying to get this more and more at the bedside and to say it's important for all of us. It's not okay to just, you know, say, oh, the docs are looking at it or the radiologist is looking at it. It's an important part of the care. And with a little effort, we can all we can all learn a little bit more. And so I hope that the podcast, you know, took away some maybe of the mystery and maybe makes you curious. And, you know, I would just invite you the next time you are taking care of a baby going to MRI, you know, although it's a, a lot of work to, to take a baby, but just maybe you have a, a deeper appreciation of the value that it adds to the to the plan of care and to potentially giving families the information they need and that it's worth it um, to go through that effort and, um, and just, you know, just start paying attention to it a little more and, and just add it to your practice and not, don't, don't ignore it, I guess is what I'm trying to, to say. But you guys, your expertise was so helpful for all of us. I, I feel like all the all NICU nurses will feel, you know, I can understand this. The Instagram filter analogy, I think, yeah. very helpful. <laughs> you, can yeah. all, you know, I really appreciate getting our babies' brains Instagram ready, right? So yes, I think that's, sure. that's the that's very useful information. And, you know, we will feel more confident in talking to our parents and talking with the medical team, you know, to ultimately improve outcomes of these babies, because that's why we're all here, right? And, you know, we always talk about neurodevelopmental care and neuroprotective yeah. care. And this this is where it's at. This is, this is why, because these are the pictures that we're seeing. So thank you guys so much for coming and just demystifying uh, neuroimaging and, and making it fun. I appreciate it. Thanks no, for having thanks us, again. Jill. It was great. Yeah, thank cool. you. Thanks very much. Make sure you never miss an episode of NanCast by subscribing now. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks for your support and letting us into your ears. Have a great day. <laughs>